Let's go, go, go. All right. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Welcome to VUX World. Really need to bring back the VUX World theme tune. I think that's what's missing in this uh, in this situation here. VUX World theme tune, little staging video beforehand. You'd have thought I'd have got off my ass and sorted this out after five and a half years of doing this, but there you go. Most, what's most important is the content. That's what I'll say. Uh, anyway, welcome. Welcome to VUX World. Uh, thank you for joining us. Today, we have an epic conversation with Matt Taylor from Noble. You probably heard Matt on the podcast before. If you were at the Voice and AI Summit in uh, September, then you would have seen Matt speak on our stage. Uh, and Noble are doing some very interesting stuff using some incredible technologies, very bullish on large language models. However, unlike many other vendors who are bullish on large language models and generative AI for the sake of being fashionable and trendy, uh, what Matt and the team are doing is, is really working out how to apply this stuff properly in the enterprise with the right kind of controls and working, it, working on it in the right kind of way. So he's got some developments to share with us which we're going to do there's been hell on at open ai hell on at OpenAI and so we will have a bit of a discussion about what's going on there and what that means for the industry what it, what the current situation means for you and me if you're a, a brand in this space and you kind of explore in generative AI if you're a vendor in this space and you've built a whole bunch of capabilities using OpenAI's APIs and now the future of OpenAI is looking a little bit kind of hasty like what do you do so we're going to have a bit of a conversation about that but before we dive into that I do need to tell you about a couple of things next week if if you are in the uh, listening to this uh, on November. 21st, 22nd or 23rd, uh, it'll be next week. If you listen to it after then, it'll be this week, which is the Call and Contact Center Expo. It is happening at the XL Arena in London on the 29th and 30th of November, next week, as I said. Uh, a whole bunch of companies are going to be there. A whole bunch of people are going to be there. Essentially, if you haven't been to the XL Arena in London before, it's a massive space. And if you are even remotely interested in customer experience, it is, if it is your job to be improving customer experience and contact center systems uh, or, or anything like that, customer service, you really need to be there. All of the top vendors are going to be there uh, showcasing their most current initiatives and I'm sure I'm sure that the whole place is going to be flooded with generative AI talk I'll be doing a talk uh, myself on the Thursday the 30th and I'm going to be talking about whether or not AI is a opportunity or a threat for the contact center for those of you that follow me and have been listening to this show for quite a while you will probably know the position that I stand however it will be a balanced argument uh, and uh, aside from that if you do want to go there, by the way, you can go to callandcontactcenterexpo.co.uk. It's a bit of a mouthful, but just Google it. Callandcontactcenterexpo.co.uk. Uh, other things coming up. Next year, there is the AI World Series. All right, you can go to AIWorldSeries.com to find out more. Essentially, what this is, is a awards ceremony, awards uh, recognition for anybody working in the AI sort of space. If you are a brand that's implementing AI, if you're a vendor that's building tools, if you're a individual who's been working on some interesting stuff, then you can uh, um, essentially apply to kind of be considered for these awards. The categories include the best of use of AI and insurance and a whole bunch of other verticals, healthcare, travel, hospitality, etc. And then also there's a lot of stuff around products. So the best use of AI for analytics, best use of AI for sentiment analysis, best use of generative AI for text in a product, for image, for video, etc, etc, etc. This event is tuned into by hundreds and th or thousands even of people 
people um, all across the world. It's set in Dubai if you want to go there yourself or you can tune in online. And regardless, you will still benefit from all of the exposure of being crowned a champion in whichever category you decide to submit for. I've got Harry Potter in my head. I've been watching Harry Potter lately. I was going to say you're going to be crowned a Tri-Wizard champion, but uh, maybe not Tri-Wizard, but it'll be definitely an AI champion if you do if you do enter. You can go to AIWorldSeries.com to enter. AIWorldSeries.com to enter. All right. So there you go. Anyway, on with the show, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Matt Taylor, Chief Product Officer at Noble. Matt, hello again, my friend. Hey, how's it going, Kane? Very good. Very good. How are you? Good. Good. Things are going really well. And, uh, you know, the holiday season's uh, uh, upon us, so it's always, uh, um, uh, it's a time where enterprise tend to slow down, but I, I think this year might be a little bit different with just, you know, the heat of generative AI and, um you know, we're, we're actually seeing a lot of enterprises still, uh, you know, being very responsive around this time, which, you know, not used to. Yeah, it's mad, isn't it? The whole pace of everything keeps kind of increasing. And typically, uh, yeah, people would think that December, you know, November, like, you know, Thanksgiving this week and stuff like that, things would slow down. But uh, it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't really feel like that. It feels as though sort of, you know, certainly for the retail and stuff like that, it's ramping up for Christmas, so things are going to get busier rather than quieter. Um, and, yeah, the pace of change just seems to be so fast that no one can really switch off these days, which uh, is mad. Yeah, no doubt. And, and uh, you know, we've talked about this before, but that's why I think whoever – you know, continues to focus on innovation in this space, uh, whether it's the big players or, you know, uh, vendors like Noble, uh, that, that's the only way you're going to be able to keep up. It's it's moving at a pace now that um, none of us thought would would be the case at, at this point in time. And so I think just um, if you ever feel like you're not putting cycles into innovation, that that's probably going to be a big problem in, in just, a, you know, six months to a year. It used to be you would see that sometimes uh, biting you, um, down the road later, like three to five years. Um, but I think now it's 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 more important than ever. Mm, definitely. And more important than ever to kind of stay agile and responsive to what's going on, you know. And I think that the businesses that can be quick, respond fast and make changes, pivot where necessary are the ones that end up kind of, you know, fighting fit. And, and I think this week has definitely... Um, it's at least made a lot of people, I would think, pause to not even just consider their options in light of the stuff that's been going on with OpenAI, but just generally pause and watch and wonder what's going on. And if I've got a product that's using OpenAI's APIs, what does that mean for me? Um, you know, and it's kind of a, a a mad sort of time at the minute. I mean, I'm sure you've been following what's been going on with. Uh, with OpenAI over the last few days, you can't you can't open LinkedIn without coming into contact with some new development that wasn't that wasn't a development twenty minutes ago. Yeah, there's no doubt, and uh, yeah, I found out uh, um, Friday afternoon. I was on a flight and uh, got a text from someone, you know, letting me know that uh, Sam Altman had been um, ousted by the board, and then it was just a, a domino effect of a, a lot of different events and. You know, still not exactly sure all the details of, and, and if that'll be even released, but it's it's very interesting to say the least. You know, OpenAI has taken over as a, a leader in this space, um, funded very heavily uh, by Microsoft, you know, $10 billion. And seeing that they're facing some of these problems, uh, you know, there's a lot of ways you can take it, right? You know, if you're an enterprise 
or um, any uh, user of OpenAI's um, technology APIs, you know, there is a little bit of a concern there of, of you know, what, what is the longevity of this company? Um, you know, the face of it is not only gone, but a lot of their most, you know, uh, tenured researchers. Um, I, I, I just find it interesting, especially that Microsoft uh, is snagging all of them, right? It's almost like they're hedging their bet that, you know, hey, we put $10 billion in this company. We're not letting anyone walk away without, you know, taking a swing. Um, so, it, it, in general, I, I do think there's obviously cause for concern. Um, as a vendor in this space, I'm more or less just watching um, to see what happens. I don't think it necessarily affects uh, our strategy at this point. Um, you know, I like I've said but, uh, numerous times, we're, we're not a, a model company. We leverage these models, um, whether they're commercial or open source. And, um, you know, so I, I don't necessarily have a stake in this in, in terms of, you know, whether they – you know, succeed or not, but uh, it is interesting nonetheless, like, especially what you said, you can't go on LinkedIn without seeing uh, quite a bit of activity uh, about what's the newest, you know, whether it's the employees writing a letter to the board or, um, you know, all the new people that are moving over to Microsoft sub, uh, subsidiary. So, uh, yeah, it's interesting. It's mad. It's mad. For those people who haven't been, you know, glued to their screens over the last few days, essentially a very brief sort of synopsis is, OpenAI, as you know, fired Sam Altman on Friday night. Greg Brockman, who basically is a senior VP there, uh, he kind of immediately sent a message to the rest of the staff and said, don't really know what's going on, Sam's gone, and I quit, <laughs> basically. And then there was a scramble at OpenAI to see what's going to happen um, and stuff like that. Sunday, I think it was, Microsoft said that, or it might even be early Monday, Microsoft hired Sam Altman, hired Sam, um, Greg Brockman. And so now it's like the two people who were the head of the company, the two public figures at the company that were doing all of the, you know, the keynotes and all of the sort of like uh, public publicity, publicity and stuff like that. Um, they're now at Microsoft. And then it comes out that the information published something today, it might be actually might have been yesterday, <clears throat> that during the course of the weekend, the board at OpenAI uh, tried to um, kind of pursue the Anthropic CEO, Darius, uh, I forget his surname, to come and join OpenAI as CEO and then merge Anthropic with OpenAI. Um, and then, as you said, the 710 out of 770 members of staff at OpenAI wrote a letter to the board or signed a letter to the board saying, if you don't resign, we're going to leave and join Microsoft. Now, whether Microsoft, <laughs> whether Microsoft will take them, who knows? <laughs> it's quite a bold claim to say we're just going to go and leave. We're going to go and join Microsoft. Um, but that's kind of where it is at the moment. The staff have basically revolted and been like, "Leave the board needs to leave, otherwise we're leaving." Uh, the board seemingly have made a couple of bad decisions um, in the process of trying to sort this kind of stuff out. Reasons stated apparently is that Sam Altman wasn't entirely truthful with the board about certain activities. There was a rumour at the back end of last week that he's been having conversations with Microsoft about joining. There was other rumours that he'd been having conversations with a Saudi investment group about a chip uh, startup that apparently he'd been theorising to some degree. Um, whether that is the reason why, who knows? The other rumours is that Sam Altman was driven more by commercial interests than uh, safety. And so the kind of 
uh, non-profit side of OpenAI and the members of the board who are more concerned with safety and, and the non-profit organization not particularly liking the fact that, uh, apparently, this is all rumor, not particularly liking the fact that Sam Altman was pursuing things like the GPT store and having revenue share and gunning for revenue kind of prematurely and stuff like that. Um, and so, yeah, that's where it is. Whether So what will happen then is obviously unknown. Either uh, the board stands strong, the staff stand their ground and they leave, hoping to get swept up by Microsoft, in which case, what's the point of OpenAI? Um, maybe the board resign and a new board comes in. God knows what that will look like and what shape that will take and how long that will take and who's going to appoint the board if the board disappears. <laughs> uh, and then, <laughs> oh, things just calm down and resolve themselves and everything's kind of fine. But um, it's a mad situation. Microsoft, potentially, they own 50% of OpenAI. They've invested, as you said, billions of dollars into OpenAI. They could feasibly ex- try and acquire a broader share to then basically take ownership of it and reinstate Sam Altman and Greg in in position. Or they could swoop up some more staff. They've already taken on a bunch of researchers, as you said, swoop up some more staff and start again, try and build something themselves. Someone commented on my uh, LinkedIn about the fact that, uh, not the fact, but in theory, to build these models, you need data, immense amounts of processing capabilities and talent. Microsoft allegedly have been providing OpenAI with a shit ton of data. They're definitely providing them with all of their compute because that's what the investment basically is. It's credits for Azure cloud services. And now they've got some of the talent. And so, you know, join the dots. They could acquire OpenAI. They could just build their own stuff. Who knows? It's all a mad situation. Yeah, it's, you know, and, and like you said, there's a, a few of those rumors and, you know, whether they're true or not, we, you know, we'll, we'll have to, to wait to find out. But it is interesting hearing that the the board is the one potentially pushing them away from, you know, more of the commercial opportunities or is, is more concerned of the safety. Um, most of the time, what I think, what at least what I've seen is that the board is the one pushing towards revenue and not as much concerned of the ethics and safety while you have the idealistic CEO that's all about, you know, making the world a better place. And so it's, it's interesting to see those roles a little bit switched here, but uh, nonetheless, I do think Microsoft um, is not going to let their um, investment um, become too big of a risk. And that's why I see, you see them extremely involved in this. I I don't think they're going to, for example, let any of the, the top tier talent walk to, Google or Amazon meta without a, a, a pretty big fight. Yeah, 100%. I mean, even though OpenAI, I don't suppose you class it as a startup anymore. Um, it's, you know, multi-billion, worth multi-billions of dollars. Um, but it's not necessarily too big to fail like you know remember when the financial crisis and they were talking about the banks being too big to fail they've got far too much money you know far too much kind of like uh, fingers in too many pies or whatever the government can't let the banks fail the economy can't fail so the banks basically end up being too big to fail I don't think that OpenAI is in that situation where it's too big to fail 770 staff is not a massive organisation the valuation is based on potential future um, you know realities that have the potential to occur however it's definitely too close to Microsoft to fail as you said Microsoft have invested billions in this company Um, they see it seemingly as um, a way of them 
definitely massively boosting their cloud business because everything's running on Azure and everything that, the better OpenAI does the better that is for Microsoft but also it gets them in serious conversations about being an innovative brand being at the forefront of technology you know Google fair enough is building its own stuff Amazon's building some of its own stuff it's a bit quieter than Google is um, but Microsoft is sort of doesn't really have the same degree, although it's published some open source models and stuff like that, but it doesn't have the same weight at the moment as the Google, the the Metas, for example, Amazons. So this is a kind of key strategic thing for Microsoft is to be associated with groundbreaking, innovative technology. And OpenAI has been the leader in that space ahead of Google for the last few years you know so it's definitely too close to microsoft to fail i think i think that worse comes to worse microsoft i think will probably just absorb it yeah yeah sorry about that the google home must have heard uh you <laughs> but uh yeah no i i again it's it's one of those things from from my perspective as a, a startup in this space it's it's just going to be watching um you know i, I don't want to say from the sideline because we're we're in the same space but you know uh, again there's be, there's differences in terms of you know model companies like OpenAI and and what they're trying to accomplish and you know more of the the applications of these models and how we can um, you know leverage these at the enterprise level. So it's uh, it's there's it's always um, interesting when you have this much turmoil at that big of a company. And I always you know as a founder there's always things that are going, you know, aren't going perfect at your company, right? Like I, whether you're a startup or even, you know, all the way up to, to a very large organization, there's issues, right? Like that's just happened, whether they're people process um, or, you know, even uh, the economy, whatever there is, there's always something. And it, uh, it just reminded me that even when, you know, you look at something like open AI that, you know, they like, they have the, you know, the world is their oyster, right? They, they have $10 billion in investment, some of the best researchers in the world, everything going extremely well. And you see all this and you're like, yeah, like, you know, grass is always greener on the other side. It always looks like someone else's, um, you know, has got their, their stuff together when in reality, um, you know, all these startups, all these companies have um, things that they're, they're dealing with. So, it was um, obviously not to that extent, but it was very interesting just because they've been kind of the um, the brainchild or, you know, transformed this whole large language model movement and put such a, a spotlight on this industry. And, you know, if they're, you know, them being that company, it's weird to see that company now kind of falling apart. Um, and, and then it's not to say that that's, you know, what what is going to end up happening. We'll, you know, again, wait to see, but uh, it is interesting. Mm. What do you what do you what do you kind of think of, and you know what's your thoughts from a product standpoint? You know, a lot of companies have been really, you know, putting all their eggs in the OpenAI basket really over the last certainly the last year. Um, there's lots of other large language model providers out there. There's a load of open source large language models, and a lot of vendors are, are using those as well. But there is a lot of you know I would say I don't know that I don't have any data on this, but I would imagine if you took a hundred companies that are using large language models in some degree, I would wager that probably more than 50% of them are using OpenAI as a core part of it, maybe more. Um, 
So does this make you reconsider anything from a product standpoint when you can see a company that seems to be really stable then going through this rocky rockiness and the future being slightly uncertain? Like, How does that change the way you think about the product that utilizes APIs from that company? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, definitely from a go to market perspective, I see, you know, one from a messaging perspective on just a, a chance to reemphasize how, you know, how we are positioned in the market versus um, the anthropics, the hugging faces, the the open AIs and how, um, you know, we leverage those models to power our system. But that that almost diversifies us in terms of like we're not there's a lot of vendors out there that are, you know, pretty much attached to open AI. So where open AI goes is going to be an indicator of where their business goes. And so that would be one thing I would just want to, you know, it, it's a chance to, to re-clarify or, um, you know, emphasize where, where we stand in the market. Um, and then again, there's, there are a ton of enterprises that are leveraging them. A few of the enterprises that we've had conversations with in the past um, that had interest in, in, in leveraging Noble are, are, you know, have gone down the open AI route. So I, I definitely think we'll, um, find a way to reconnect with them and see if that has changed their mind. I would imagine that most of these enterprises will shift over to Microsoft. Um, you know, that, that, that's kind of going to be a, a transition that Microsoft and OpenAI might work together on. But, uh, you know, it goes back to a lot of what I said before where, you know, OpenAI is providing an API, but it's, it's how you leverage that API, the, the AI pipelining, and the actual application and infrastructure that you put around that and it's a lot easier said than done and i've you know we, we've seen this before in the build versus buy or build versus buy versus partner i think the the partner that we you know we talked about this on our uh the conversational ai divide podcast but um you know you 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 really broke it down very well in terms of when when you think about building versus buying versus partnering with the vendor and what that actually means I, I think that having the right talent, especially in today's um, ecosystem, is a lot harder than it was before because these, you know, these jobs, these roles of AI engineers, data scientists, researchers, they're they're more coveted than than ever have. So you have to be paying top dollar if you want to have those types of people in your organization. And without them, I think it is um, a, a little bit of a fool's errand to try and you know you leverage all these APIs, build out all of that structure and, um, you know, at, at the application level. Um, but again, that, that's just my perspective. And, and from what I've seen, um, I, I can imagine that, uh, and this happened before when, you know, even if I go back to the previous startup I was at, there was a lot of companies that said, hey, you know what, there's a lot of open source models. We can start stitching these together and build our own. And in a year down the line, they realized, it was a lot more expensive uh, than we thought it would be. A lot more time consuming, and then you know, opening up the 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 idea of working with the vendor. So I think we'll see some of those enterprises, and some of them might be successful, right? Like, uh, you know, some of them might still figure out a way to leverage those APIs, um, even if they switch from OpenAI. There's plenty of models out there that can be leveraged. It's just uh, the the talent is not that easy to find these days. Mm, definitely, definitely. I mean, I think your approach is is sensible anyway, which is to leverage 
whichever models are best for the job at hand, you know, rather than putting all of your eggs in one particular basket. There is another risk that comes with putting your eggs in one basket anyway, and this is nothing to do with the open AI situation specifically. It's to do with really the the development of the models. Um, there's a guy, uh, I forget, forget his name now, apologies for doing that again, but um, he's going to be on the podcast soon. He's, he did a study looking at um, the performance of GPT-4, and then when they released uh, an update to that model, he's kind of spot-checked it and things have changed. And so, you know, even if you over-rely on one particular model, the changes and iterations to those models are going to change things. And if you look at OpenAI and the APIs they've provided, over time, they deprecate the older ones. So even if you find that you don't want to upgrade, you don't want to move to the most up-to-date model, it's likely only a matter of time before the one you're using gets turned off. So... How do you also plan for that in a solution like Noble where it's not as if you're building a chatbot, you're building a platform that others are using to build things. So it's almost like how how do you keep on top of the changes within these models from a kind of product standpoint, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. That's and that's part of what I, you know, alluded to earlier in in in, in I think one of our, our previous sessions of how innovation is consistently going to be the way you differentiate and part of that innovation is understanding the models and the growth of these models and and which models make most sense for which use cases and that's something that we uh you know we have a, as part of our platform team is we do have ai engineers that are consistently testing these newer models because you know there's a lot of sacrifices that you make when you go to the larger models whether it's hey we need the, the amount of infrastructure that's needed to decrease the latency is, you know, higher dollars per per query now. And so it's figuring out the right balance of, of you know, where where we don't need those super large models and can get away with um, some of those models that are a little bit smaller, but might actually even be more um, specific to that use case. And um, again, the, the difference that I'm seeing in, in how a lot of the industry talks about it versus we, how we talk about it, and we can get a lot uh, really into this is this idea that a lot of the applications and use cases that I'm seeing are, are really going towards internal employee facing agent facing. And I'm not saying those use cases don't drive value because they absolutely do. Right. If an agent um, has the right tooling to be able to deliver answers to their customers quicker and easier, that's always going to be a value add. But when we, would think about the the chatbot journey from from you know the very initial chatbots. The the dream was that we could have these chatbots, virtual assistants, um, IVR automate these to remove some of them from our our agents' hands, right? And and some of them, you know, are all, you're always going to need a human, um, uh, especially with some of those more um, unique circumstances. But those ones that we want to automate, that, that direct customer support, that's what that's what the dream state was. And I'm seeing that the the talks of generative AI are really focused on agent facing, employee facing, and 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 you know, at Noble, you know, we we have a couple pilots like that as well. But we also are doing direct customer support use cases with our clients. And and the reasoning for that is that we we have a safe approach. We have a way where you can have guarantees uh, of the outputs, and that ultimately. Um, to me is where I don't see a ton of, of the, you know, the gardeners of the world focusing on. I think a lot of the, the money and the spend is on that internal facing. And, and that's, you know, pretty normal just because I think there's, 
uh, you know, a level of understanding and education that's going to happen over time. But uh, yeah, I think right now that that's one of the biggest differences in, in what and in how we're leveraging these large language models. Mm. Yeah, I've, I've heard I've noticed the same around um, internal use cases and stuff like that. And from those that I've spoke to who are predominantly using this technology internally for, you know, contact center, agent assist type things or HR or there's even ones where I know of a, of a bank in America which is using it for an internal sort of like document advice search kind of thing. Um, and I can understand why you would do that because of the risk of hallucination, as you said, basically. And so it's perceived as it's a stepping stone, uh, you know, it's a step on a stepping stone towards that customer-facing automation, but it's one that can be done with less risk because if there is hallucinations, it doesn't really matter as much if it's staff because they might, actually, they might not spot that it's a hallucination, but at least there's less danger because there's definitely a human in the loop there and all that kind of stuff. And so... I can I can understand why people would be kind of tempted to to do that first. Uh, so, what is the alternative if someone is thinking about doing an internal use case because they perceive that these large language models and generative models are too risky to put in front of customers? What's the remediation to encourage yeah. them to to do that? Like, what specifically is it that that enables you to put it in front of customers without that risk? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the way we're leveraging these large language models, if I go back to, to the early days of, of Noble, so back 2021, we're actually um, a little over our two-year anniversary. And I remember yes. our first, thank you, appreciate it. And I remember our first month, you know, we, we explored the idea of leveraging uh, retrieval augmented generation, RAG, um, and, and you know, it's very popularized now. And we we talked about leveraging that to the enterprise and we found out right away that, you know, in early conversations, if we couldn't guarantee, you know, the output and the litmus, te litmus test of that is really, can you tell me all the answers that it can possibly say? If you can't, then there aren't guarantees on that, right? You can have guardrails all you want, but if you don't have the, like a list of outputs that you can send their compliance, a lot of enterprises are never going to be okay going to uh, direct customer support with that. So then what we looked at is like, okay, how do we, we could leverage these large language models to create semantic embeddings. And you see a lot of um, vendors are starting to hop on this um, uh, bandwagon, if you will, in terms of being able to semantically search through content. And so this is what we very much started with. And what that really is, is you leverage these large language models to create these embeddings, these uh, vector representations throughout the content and leverage the user's query to then match that to the most relevant content. So if I come into a brand and I ask a question, it's going to bring me to, you know, whatever, ideally, whatever content is most relevant to my question. And we started with that. And then what we started to see was, okay, well, that's like a search experience, but there's not, there's, there's conversational elements that are missing of that. And, and, and what I mean by that is there's, you know, contextual follow-ups that happen there's workflows that happen. When I go in, I, you know, a lot of these enterprises aren't just trying to answer an informational question of like, hey, how do I do this? They're actually helping, they wanna help that person do that certain task. And mm. so these workflows, these conversational contextual follow-ups, those are what are, are traditionally built through these conversational building blocks that we've known as intents and entities 
and, um, you know, transitions and all of that, um, you know, is what we think of when we think of the, the previous generation of conversational AI. And so what we've looked at is, okay, where can we leverage large language models to apply to each of those building blocks so that we're still constraining the model's output. So you'll never be able to go in and not exactly know, you know, what are all the options the user like can get, and you know, that response can be. But instead now it's like, okay, we're gonna leverage these, these traditional blocks, but completely rethink how we do that leveraging large language models. So we found, and these are some of the patents, we found ways to automate contextual awareness so that every time there's a follow-up, the AI's already understanding of the previous queries so it doesn't need to be trained on, you know, the next type of query that can result into a follow-up um, utterance. And so leveraging that um, large language models to be able to power that. Uh, we've talked numerous times about the, the entity extraction, how difficult that traditionally is in finding ways to leverage large language models to do that entity extraction. Um, but then there's, you know, and we've talked about those two, but even further what we found is, there's, there's so many different tools that we can leverage large language models to expedite the build. And one of those things is um, these workflows take a long time to, to build out. And what we have found is we can leverage large language models to do what we're calling transcript inference. And really what that is, is we can take these transcripts. Obviously, the way we work with brands is we would want to leverage transcripts that they would say, hey, this is an ideal conversation. The agent handled this extremely successfully. And what we can do is allow this large language model to actually build out the entire conversational flow for us. And now we have this constrained output that we can manipulate and, you know, obviously change different parts of how it responded and add intents or flows that we want. But it gets us 80% of the way there way quicker than we ever could. And there's plenty of ways that we can do that. We're, we're right now in a, in a few of our pilots, we're leveraging these large language models to transform the content because what we noticed right away when we were getting into these um, pilots was, hey, like we're going to, you know, the whole idea is we're going to take their content and use that to power the system. Well, unfortunately, a lot of times brands have uh, content that's not necessarily formatted in the best way. It's not conversational at its face value. And so what we can do is leverage these large language models to transform that content, generate you know, specific ways of how they would want to answer questions, rephrasing, summarization, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then the the last uh, very novel piece is, and this is something that uh, we've run into recently when we take a lot of content in, in very uh, nuanced or um, jargon specific um, industries is that, you know, sometimes the AI, when you're leveraging those semantic embeddings, it can get tripped up by these these proper nouns that it's never, you know, probably hasn't been trained on. And what we found is there's ways to leverage large language models to decompose the query. And what that means is we're essentially asking the large language model, like, hey, can you first, before we even put it through the semantic retrieval method, can you make sense of this? What does this mean? And coming up with different phrases that it, uh, leveraging the large language model comes up with different ways that that question could be asked to then decompose that query and find out what are some of the, like, you know, is that specific proper noun even meant to, to, you know, to be handled or is that more just extra noise that we can eliminate when we're going to retrieve that content? So I, I know there's like quite a bit that I covered mm. there. Some of it, you know, definitely can get a little bit more technical. Um, but, you know, right now that's just, 
the, the high level picture is to think of, we are looking at conversational AI, the traditional building blocks and figuring out how we could leverage large language models to augment those building blocks to make it faster and easier than ever before, but still have that controlled output that, that you're going to need. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. So the the first part of, of that you mentioned is the contextual awareness. And I've, I've seen some examples of people doing this or trying to do this contextual awareness by, it's a very clunky way of doing it and you won't be able to kind of do this in any form of scale. <laughs> yeah, nearly, yeah. <laughs> My son comes in dressed as Harry Potter. Uh <laughs> asking if I'm finished. Bless him. Um, so so you won't be able to do this at any type of scale, but the methodology is that you an utterance comes from the uh, customer, the user. You then take that utterance, you build it into a prompt to and send that to a large language model, and you take, you know, you provide it with, this is all the stuff that we're going to talk about. This is an example of the um, the utterance uh, you might have some data behind the scenes that it can use to draw responses from etc but then essentially whenever it generates a response whatever the user says next you basically take the transcript from before it and feed that into the model as context now that does that really isn't necessarily dialogue management because you don't have any state management at all you're basically just taking a transcript throwing it to a model hoping that it can understand the tr- the, the gist of it hoping that the conversation don't go, doesn't go on for long enough that the whole kind of you know you're out of tokens basically and it just doesn't seem to be a a sensible way it, it seems to be so flaky that I, I wouldn't even consider attempting it so what is different around the kind of contextual awareness side of things is it a combination of a little bit more of a deterministic workflow type situation or is it a better way of kind of keeping on feeding the model with prior prior bits of information for want of a better word no that's that's a great question and and the the method that you're referring to uh again is what we're not really that bullish on and and, and what i mean by that is leveraging the large language model as like the actual application straight up meaning we're going to keep giving this prompts and keep letting this dictate you know how the the conversation is handled we're not that bullish on that because of you know all the risk that we see with that and and mm. maybe if we were you know targeting uh smaller businesses or even a, a b2c i could see how there's you know a ton of interest in that right but being that we're going after the large enterprises we can't afford any risk and so we have to be very deterministic and, and understand those outputs. And so the way that we're automating contextual awareness is first we look at the content itself and we're leveraging these large language models to cluster these topic areas. So the, the first part of that clustering of topic areas allows for the AI to understand, you know, when a user is referring to topic A, how topic A is related to topic B and C and D and so on. And so it has this map of all these different clusters and how they interrelate. And then what it does is it automates the actual handling of that and understanding which topics are mutually exclusive of each other. So when I go in there and I ask a question of like, hey, you know, um, I'm looking for, you know, the horsepower on, you know, the, the, um, the Mustang, uh, the, the Ford Mustang, right? And I'm asking about the horsepower on that Mustang. 
um, what it's looking at is like, okay, there's a, there's a vehicle and there's a, there's a horsepower. Well, my next question is like, well, hey, what about the the uh, Ford Explorer? It's now realizing that like the Mustang and Ford Explorer, that's a mutually like they can't both be like in that question. So now it's automa- automatically replacing that Mustang with the Ford Explorer. And then if I said, you know, okay, and what's the towing capacity on that? It realizes that, oh, towing capacity and uh, horsepower are, are mutually exclusive. Like we can't answer both of those. And so it, it what it's, it's understanding is how to handle that context because it understands all those different clustering. So we actually have two patents. One is for the, uh, the initial clustering um, mechanism. And then the second is the, the handling of being able to know when to replace and, and maintain context. Mm, interesting. Does that require that initial clustering? Presumably that requires some form of pre-training, does it? You get data from the client with some, somehow and you would you would do you would build that it sounds like a knowledge graph or, or some sort of ontology you would build based on being provided data first or are you doing this in real time as conversations are happening and then you're building it as you go so the first thing we do is we let like we ingest the content the content from there is what we have is a zero shot approach where it creates all these clusters but you can Uh, fine tune it. And a lot of times what that means is adding different examples of where you would want the AI to um, respond with this specific content. Um, Just because I I like to say it gets you 70 to 80% of the way there. But like when you want to get it to the point where it's, you know, accurate most of the time, like 90 up percent, that's when you're going to want to be able to fine tune it. And that's where we have our, our GUI that we have, we have a way where you can do that through you know, no code by adding different examples to different pieces of content and, um, and, and, and creating contextual tags for each of those different contents so that you can help train it. But again, out of the box, it's, it's, it's pretty good. You know, essentially when I look at what the previous generation of tech is, you'd be happy to get even close to this um, after working hours. I mean, you're talking like you know, multiple um, engineers, data scientists working on this for, you know, three, four, you know, weeks at a time. And now we're getting there right away. And so it's funny, what I've seen is the expectation is now even higher in terms of what the accuracy should be, how the how conversational it should be. And that's fine, right? Like uh, the expectation should continue to get higher. Um, but it's, uh, it's only possible because of what these large language models are able to provide. Um, in terms of especially that speed that you can get to market with. Because like you're saying, when in real time, when we do handle these conversations, that's where we actually get to get, you know, get the voice of the customer. And, you know, we're, we're in a lot of these exercises right now in the pilots that we're doing. Uh, one of the uh, Fortune uh, 100 uh, automotive companies we're working with, we're handling their support inquiries. And we're seeing plenty of times where their content has not been developed in certain areas and how quickly you can add that content and now have it part of the system. And that system now automatically updates into the clustering, into the handling of the, the, the context follow-ups. And so it's just much quicker than it ever was before. Um, but there still is that process of, you know, consistently building out new intense, new flows. It's just, you know, the, the difference is, is how quick you can actually do that. Mm, that's really good and and a lot of that stuff you're talking about there regarding data obviously <laughs> not a great deal of companies have fantastic data 
Um, so a lot of the work is in getting hold of the data in the first place, then making sure it's fit for consumption, making sure it's all sort of tagged properly and all that kind of stuff, making sure that it's, you know, conversational as you sort of suggested. Um, I'm assuming from what you were saying earlier on where you were talking about kind of turning content from being fairly poor into being fit for conversation that that pro- that that process essentially maybe you're leveraging large language models to do that but i'm assuming there's a human in the loop at some point there yeah absolutely and and there has to be right because what we're doing is uh, leveraging the the generative um uh capabilities of large language models to uh re you know shape that content and and, and reword it rephrase it however you want to think about it but it's changing the actual language and with that there's obviously the risk of if someone doesn't review that you're essentially doing what we're you know not uh, big fans of, which is leveraging generative to the end user without any type of constraint. So um, what what we found is working uh, developing a really good relationship with the knowledge base uh, team or whoever owns the content um, because they have to be a very big part of of this puzzle when you're when you're thinking about especially if you're going direct to customer support and um, customer engagement, wherever you're gonna be directly facing with customers, you have to be changing and editing that content and doing that, there's ways to expedite it like we have with the the generative capabilities of large language models, but then having that human in the loop to um, consistently review and and make sure that those changes do uh, stay consistent with what the brand message is. Mm, Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's... uh... It's, it's interesting. And then the, the the piece around you were saying where you, you get some examples of some agent conversations that are working well, you take those and then you create the basics, the basis of the conversation built off, off of that. How do you find kind of like in the kind of real world when people are having conversations with it, do you find that the patterns are still the same? And what I mean by that is like, because we, we've done things like in the past tried taking transcripts, verbatim transcripts, got everything that a customer has said, you know, you build a model based off of that. And then you put a chatbot live or a voicebot live and it turns out that actually how people speak to it are entirely different. You know, their responses are shorter. Um, they, they are not necessarily shorter, but they're... they're the tone is, is slightly different. If they know they're talking to a bot, that changes the interaction. So sometimes the model, the traditional model, not a large language model, performs worse when you use real data. Different to when, if you're using the data that's coming through for them having a conversation with the bot, then that's fine. But if you just say transcript, it, it often doesn't have the same sort of, sort of effect. So how, how, do you, have you noticed that from the conversation pattern perspective, that you know, building a conversation based on those agent transcripts has a you know positive impact in the wild. Yeah, so you bring up a great point. And a lot of the time, when you actually see these transcripts, um, they're not what I would call ideal transcripts of how you even would want to handle some of the customer um, you know conversation, especially when you're trying to automate it. Right? There's just a different way that humans talk to each other versus how uh, a human would interact with with AI. And so. Um, you know, one, it's figuring out, hey, like, let's put the select few of, of transcripts and make sure we're very diligent on which ones we want to leverage first when going to the conversation um, uh, development or design. Um, and, and, you know, like I said before, it's not a, hey, like you 
you put the transcript in, pops out and like, hey, let's put it right in front of customers. Like it, it gets you probably 70, 80 percent of the way there. It does some of the the mapping out of flows that you, you know, ultimately don't have to necessarily think of, but you still need that conversational designer or at least conversational content person that can look at that and be like, oh yeah, I wouldn't want it to respond like this in this situation. And so there's still a human in the loop need. And, and I see a lot of vendors in this space, um, you know, making everything seem so easy and, you know, it's just going to get there right away. And, and it's like, no, we have a way to do it. And I think you hear a lot of vendors, even us, say how easy it is because we know what it was before. And it really <laughs> is that much easier than it, like, it's so much easier than it was before that it feels easy because you're like, oh, wow, we don't have to create all those different flows, figure out all the different contextual follow-ups. Now we can actually get 80% of the way there and then start to figure out where we want to, um, you know, isolate some of the customer flows to maybe only go down a certain route because we don't want it to handle this because this is actually for human. And um, sometimes a great exercise I've done this for the last few years is whenever I talk to, um, you know, any um, CX exec, especially on, um, you know, that it is focused on customer experiences, take like, write for me the ideal transcript of, of what you would want an agent in a, in a, in a, um, your user to say, and then do that with AI. And you start to see there are differences in how they would want the AI to respond versus the agent. And I think that's sometimes understanding these aren't the same, but there's definitely some um, transference and types of like being able to take that original transcript and make it very much like um, a, a baseline of what you use to design on top of. Mm, yeah. I remember a podcast I did years ago with Oren Jacob, who was the CEO of Pullstring, um, that then got acquired by Apple. And what he used to say is because he, he worked as one of the sort of technical leads at Pixar and a lot of the kind of, um, you know, Toy Story and Bugs Life and stuff like that, his team did the animations for it. And he told a really great story, which you've kind of touched on there, which is that um, his boss, he set, he set a task basically and he had to create a pitch uh, 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 animated sequence of a lake or a bit of moving water like an ocean or whatever and comparing that to a real camera footage of the of a moving water the task was can you tell the difference between the two and his boss eventually after some studying did pick out the picked out the right one and said yeah that's the animated one but the lesson in there that orange orange shared with us before was that what you're trying to do in that instance when you make an animated film is you're not trying to convince the user that it is real footage. You're just trying to take the principles of the way the water moves and the colour of the water and the, the, the all of the bits that make it water, take all of that and instill it in the image so that when someone sees it, they know it's water. And the same thing is directly applicable to conversational AI, which is that you're not trying to replicate the conversation between a person and another person. You're trying to take the essence of the conversation and the hallmarks of the conversation and the, the nuances that make a conversation a conversation, and you're, you're taking that to make the interface work better. Not necessarily to have the same conversation, it's all about making the interface work better. So it's a, yeah, it's interesting how you basically touched on that exact that exact thing, you know. I love that analogy. I really do. I might have to uh, use that in, um, <laughs> you know, a, a future customer call. But it, it's it's so true, right? I mean, like we, 
I would never interact with AI the way I interact with, you know, uh, another person, um, regardless of, you know, if I'm close to that person or not. It's just we as humans have a certain comfortability of how we communicate to another person that we expect it to be, you know, that person to be able to, um, you know, coherently respond and be able to carry on that conversation where um, I, I don't, I think there is going to be, uh, you know, and I've, I'm, you're starting to see this already with like the, the introduction of chat GPT and people starting to get more comfortable with, you know, even sharing a lot more information when they're trying to, you know, get a response from AI. Um, you know, I'm, you know, sometimes I, what I do is I look through, I start every day looking through queries of our different customers for like their user queries. And you do start to see some of them where I'm like, wow, like that has to be influenced by ChatGPT in the sense of how they're asking a question, because that would have never been the way someone would have asked a question before. It was like, you know, pouring out like the, the whole, like every single thing they're dealing with and then like asking for, for an end result. Um, whereas then some people are still in the, the mode of like just keywords, you know, Hey, like account. And it's like, well, now it's, now it's actually, that's even, there's two different, you know, problems I see there, right? There's the one that shares a lot of information. It's figuring out how do we decompose that query and figure out what is the most important part of that query that we respond with. And then the other part is, you know, if someone just says account, well, now we need to figure out what more information we need. And it's figuring out the balance of how we leverage these large language models to assist in being able to um, disambiguate when someone says account, oh, what would you like to know about account? Here are some of the options or leverage the, the large language model to decompose and get rid of the noise in a query to be, oh, what's the core focus of what they're trying to figure out? Um, and so, you know, I, I think we're in an interesting time um, now more than ever, because I think you're gonna start seeing um, these two types of extremes be very, like start to become more common. Um, whereas before it was, you know, hey, like a lot of people are still on the side of, I just want to, you know, give a couple words because that's all they think that the AI can handle. And so now I think we're in a balancing act of being able to appease to both groups. Mm, that's really interesting. I can imagine that actually. Once people, once someone gets used to using ChatGPT, now there's a chatbot on an insurance website, and it's like, right, here's my situation. Lay it out step by step. Be super clear, detailed, like a prompt. What do you want to do about that? Tell me what's the next step. And it's like. 99%, 99.9% of chatbots right now, but like, I'm sorry, <laughs> didn't get that. <laughs> I'm not chat GPT. <laughs> that's mad. Yeah. That's mad. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really good. That's really good. Um, yeah, we're, we're almost up on time now, but let's, uh, we'll definitely stick the, the conversationally I divide podcast link in the show notes. Let's stick the Noble website in there as well. For those that want to uh, reach out, maybe your LinkedIn in there also. Uh, any, any final thoughts, any closing, closing words, any, what would you like people to take away from this? Uh, I think the big thing is just to, if you're an enterprise or even, you know, um, just a fan of this space to really start to challenge people on why, why can't direct customer support still be the end goal? Why, you know, why do we have to pivot away to, you know, the agent facing, employee facing uh, use cases and not because those don't bring value, they do, but we can't just disregard the customer support mechanism that we ultimately want because we think that generative AI can't, you know, has risk to it, which it does have risk to it, depending on how you leverage it. If you leverage it strictly to just face the end user without any type of constraint, even guardrails, 
um, are not going to be the solution. And so guardrails don't equal guarantees. And, you know, what right now we're in the midst of pilots where we're facing um, plenty of uh, thousands of users right now across these Fortune 500 brands. And after these pilots, I'm sure we'll have some um, great numbers that we'll be able to talk about even further and, um, you know, hopefully see a lot of these go into uh, a production setting where we're hitting millions of users. So um, early on still in, in, in our journey, um, you know, only two years and, and we're getting a lot of traction. But uh, as always, Kane, like I love these conversations. Um, you know, I, I feel like I, I, I this space, I, I didn't choose this space. It chose me. And I know that's a a cliche, but it really like, I, just like your journey and how you ended up in this space. It, uh, I don't think any of us grew up saying, yeah, conversational AI is where I'm going <laughs> to end up. Um, but it's, it's always funny how we, uh, we do get here. It is. Yeah. It, yeah. It's, it wasn't even a thing really, but I suppose it kind of was when I was born, there was, you know, things you could talk to and the technology was sort of developing itself. It certainly wasn't something that would be even remotely seen as a, you know, a career it's it's mad how how things have even the last five years it's it's when it's all for me at least you know become sort of apparent and it's great that we can you know spend time doing stuff that we love meeting fantastic people sharing knowledge and uh yeah it's ideal so i really appreciate you uh spending some time with me and uh yeah thanks very much yeah no doubt have a great holiday season and yourself, yeah. Happy Thanksgiving for uh, for this Thursday, and Happy Christmas if I don't see. You. Isn't it mad how I'm was in Happy Christmas at uh, already? This year's just flew by, but uh, yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. Anyway, nice one. Thank you so much, Matt. Thank you all for tuning in. Uh, appreciate that. Uh, don't forget to check out the AI World Series. Don't forget if you are around London next week, Thursday uh, or Wednesday, twenty ninth, Thursday thirtieth. Uh, check out the Call and Contact Center, uh, Call and Contact Center Expo. It's totally free to attend as well. By the way, should have mentioned that at the beginning. <laughs> uh, and then do check out the Conversational AI Divide podcast uh, with Matt Taylor. And you, if you have a look at that on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, you may also find another conversation with me on there. So if you enjoyed this conversation, you'll probably enjoy that conversation. <clears throat> so thank you all again, and uh, yeah, speak soon.